0: Psalm 28, one through two. To you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. Holy Spirit, I pray, your presence flood our hearts, flood our minds. Lord, would we be attuned to you and what you have to teach us? God, I pray that we would be uh, in surrender to you, Lord, that we would be giving up everything that we close our fists around and hold tightly. God, I pray in the times that are difficult and in the times that are joyful, God, I pray that we would trust you when we can't hear you. Lord, I pray that we would believe, God, when we don't understand. I pray, God, that we would know and rely on the truth that you carry us, even when we can't walk. We love you, Lord. Okay. Amen.
1: Softly creeping Left its scenes while I was sleeping color to the cold and damp, when my eyes were stemmed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. like a cancer bro-
2: I show you this video this morning to drive home one single point. The sound of silence is intense. It can drive a person mad, literally. In Minnesota, there exists a company called Orfield Laboratories. They have perfected what is called an anechoic chamber, and you can see it Up on the screen here, you can see the sound panels that absorb every wave of sound that would come from anything outside and inside. Surrounding these panels is several feet thick concrete and steel. That most people cannot enter into this room in what is the quietest room on earth and make it more than seven minutes before madness begins to descend upon their minds. NASA takes their astronauts and sends them into this room to see how they will deal with hallucinations in space because they know within 20 minutes most people begin to hallucinate and become disoriented and cannot stand the feelings of madness that overtake them. The longest that any person has ever sat in this room of silence is 45 minutes silence is intense and can be maddening what is so scary about silence we live in a world polluted by noise Where does this noise come from? It comes from life, it comes from people, it comes from the hustle and bustle, it comes from the refrigerator behind this door that always has this humming sound every Sunday morning when I preach. Noise is all around us all of the time, even when we are attempting to be quiet. Silence isn't so scary when you want it or expect it. But silence is scary when you expect life, but in return, all you get is silence. When we experience silence, but yet we know we should be hearing noise, that is a signal to us that something is wrong, something is amiss. For example, I have four children. I know that things are okay as long as there is noise. As long as there is giggling. As long as there is fighting. Things are okay. But when there is no noise, I know something is amiss. I know they are up to no good. They are doing something they should not do. Or they've done something they should have done. And they're trying to hide it and cover it up. In a relationship, whether it be with friend whether it be with spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whether it be with family, you know that relationship involves conversation, talking. But yet we've all experienced that eerie feeling of the silent treatment. That silent treatment tells us that something is wrong in that relationship. And maybe the most eerie silence in the world is that of a dead body. At my previous pastorate, I was also a chaplain with the fire department. The only time I ever got called meant that someone had died. And let me just say, it is one of the most eerie feelings in the world, a feeling I have never gotten over, that when you walk into a room and you see a body either laying on the floor or hanging from a noose because someone has committed suicide, you expect life. You expect, like, no, no, no. How how can this body just be there and be still and be silent and be quiet and there be no breath, there be no life, there's no sound coming from it. When everything else around it is moving and has life, one of the most eerie feelings in the world is to be in the presence of a body that is completely and totally silent. So why all of this talk about the maddening sound of silence? Because one of the most troubling things for Christians is when God seems silent. When we speak to God, when we expect an answer from God, but yet God is seemingly silent to all of our prayers, to all of our requests, to all of our pleadings, and to all of our petitions. I mean, after all, is God not the author of life? Have we not been in Ephesians for the entire semester? Have we not read these amazing verses in Scripture of what God has done for us, the links to which Jesus has gone to to offer Himself as a sacrifice for us? How eerie is it that when we, we pray to God and we ask God for answers that He seems silenced to us in light of these verses that we have gone over many times in Ephesians? We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. God has initiated salvation in our lives. He has called us His own children. We expect there to be this relationship where there is some type of conversation going forth of God leading us and guiding us and direct us because the Spirit dwells in us. So it should be, it it should be no surprise to us that it's maddening to our senses that at times God when he seems silent, makes us crazy. And and this was something, and the reason I preach on this this morning is because this is something that has troubled me throughout my walk as I have followed Jesus. Because when I came to follow Jesus, I wasn't looking for it and I wasn't asking for it. God directly intervened in my my life at a four-way stop sign when I was not looking, asking, seeking, or knocking. My story is three months before I graduated from Auburn, I was sitting at a four-way stop sign, and God spoke to me out of the blue. People always ask, well, what did it sound like? I said, I don't know. It was peaceful, but yet it was authoritative, and I knew that it was not for me. And he said, go to the church in front of you. So I canceled all my plans that day, that night, and the next morning, I ended up going to that church and my best friend from high school, who had only seen once in five years on campus, was there. And God used that relationship to, to initiate contact with me to be able to start to go to that church. And within, within a month or two, I said, Jesus, if you are real, I, I will do whatever you want me to do for the rest of my life. That song we sang about surrender, that was my unconditional moment of surrender. And he spoke again and he said, I want you to move to Texas. And I was like, well, no, 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 no. I said, I I meant I would do whatever you wanted me to do within the confines of Alabama because this is where all my job offers are and this is where I've planned on living out the rest of my life. Uh, Texas is not on my radar. Um, But I was serious about that call of surrender and so a few months later, I packed up my car on graduation day and drove to Texas. And there I saw God faithfully provide and then a year later, I felt God specifically call me to be a missionary overseas. I ended up at seminary I heard God's very clear speaking and calling to take my wife and our newborn to the Northwest to help start a church with a promise of nothing and only $4,000 in our pocket, which we stretched nine months and lived off of while we were in someone's basement. And then a few years later, as I was working at that church, God revealed something to me about the future that no one or anybody else could know. And three days later, everything that God had told me one night while reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to my son, every single word that he said came true in those next three days. Now, I say that because I'll tell you I have these very five powerful moments of God speaking into my life. But what I would also say to you is those moments were silent for about the next ten years. So what does a person do when their initial interaction with God is is experienced through these very powerful, direct moments where you know that God has spoken to you? That there is a speaking that is happening that is outside of yourself, that is not from you. There is no way your mind or your heart or your imagination could have dreamed this up but yet it is there and it has radically altered the course of your life. It has, it has led you into, away from your original career and your original dreams, into marriage, into family, into where you live. It has affected every single ounce of you, but then this God whom you have experienced speaking to you in such powerful ways seemingly goes silent. And when you pray and when you ask and when you plead and when you petition, you get nothing in return. How do you deal with that as a follower of Jesus in light of all these promises in scripture? Well, in Psalm 28, we see that that David is is desperate for God not to be silent. We see in verse 1, in the first half of verse 2, I pray to you, O Lord, my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you are silent, I might as well give up and die. Listen to my prayer for mercy as I cry out to you for help. Author, writer, co founder of Desiring God Ministries, John Bloom says this about the silence of God God can be maddeningly hard to get. When God says that His ways are not our ways, He really means it. He says, We have these encounters with Him where He breaks into our lives with power and answers our prayers and wins our trust and waters the garden of our faith, making it lush and green. And then there are these seasons when chaos careens with apparent carelessness through our lives and the world, leaving us shattered. Or an unrelenting darkness descends. Or an arid wind we don't even understand blows across our spiritual landscape, leaving the crust of our soul cracked and parched. And we cry to God in our confused anguish, and He just seems silent. He seems absent. Singer and songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote a song about this very subject, the silence of God, and in it are these words. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Now we have to ask ourselves are these normal experiences is what david experienced normal is what john bloom experienced normal is what andrew peterson has experienced is it normal quoting eugene peterson who if you do not know is one considered one of the the greatest saints of the 20th and 21st century He wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And if that's all you know of Andrew Peterson, or if you've only heard people bash The Message, you need to know uh, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is one of the great saints of the 21st century who has an amazing life. And he wrote a book called The Pastor, which was his memoir. And in it, he says... All of God's saints, if allowed to live long enough, are led into the lonely, disorienting, weary wilderness. And while there, we lament. Eugene Peterson talks about in his memoir that there was five years period called the Badlands. And this is a man who is a master in the Greek language, a master in the Hebrew languages, someone who truly loves God, a man who had planted churches, a man who had given up. And he said, for five years, I did not hear a single thing from God. And he talks about the misery of being in this dry desert wasteland that he called the Badlands. And he says, I experienced it. It's real. It is disorienting to be led into this wilderness by God. As Josh read from Job, Job, whom God himself said, this is the most righteous dude on planet Earth. There's nobody like Job. He's righteous. He's blameless. Job says to God in Job 30, 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Silence. King David, the guy who God hand-selected as a shepherd boy to be the guy through whom the Messiah would come, the guy through whom the entire nation of Israel would be built. The king of Israel, David, over and over, as we've already seen in Psalm 28, in a litany of psalms, expresses his frustration with God by saying like this in Psalm 22, 1 through 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So here is what we know. The experience of the silence of God is common to all believers. But, but, the question is, is it real? The question is, does perception match reality? I don't know if you've ever been in a season of the silence of God, where God seems silent. If you have never been there, then please listen to what I'm about to say, because there will be one day that it descends upon you in your relationship with God. And what I am about to say is the key to understanding and being able to walk through this without being driven mad. If you are in a season where God seems silent, realize that what I'm about to say is the first step in feeling sane again in your walk with Jesus. Is the earth round or is it flat? Now I know the internet has popularized... (laughs) Uh, something that people used to believe, and there apparently is a group of people out there that are flat earthers now. Even I've seen there are some celebrities and some sports stars who support this. Uh, I don't even call it a theory. I don't even know what you say about this thing. Um, this craziness that the earth is flat. Okay? But we know, I think science has pretty well verified that, that the earth is round. Okay? We know this. But here's the question. What is our perception of walking on this earth? It's flat. If if, if science didn't verify this, if people didn't go up into space and verify with us that the earth is round, it was logical to believe that it was flat because our experience of it is nothing but flat. Might I propose to you the facts say and prove that God is there, but our perception is that He is silent and not there. What we experience as God's absence or distance or silence is, big word here, phenomenological. Right? It's phenomenological. It's how we perceive it. It's how, it's, it's how at some point it looks and feels, but it isn't how it is. Just like we can experience the world as flat when we're walking on a huge spinning ball. I mean, we're on a big ball of dirt. We are currently traveling at 25,000 miles an hour through space where there are hundreds of billions of of solar systems and hundreds of billions of galaxies. This is the rate at which we're moving, 25,000 miles an hour, and yet it feels as if we are sitting here standing still and this whole thing is flat. All the while it's whirling around in space. Our perception is that God is silent, but is He actually silent? In the silent, suffering seasons of life, we can be tempted to believe that God is silent, that God is absent, and that He is nowhere to be found. And whether you have experience, know that one day, if allowed to live long enough, one day, God will lead you into the wilderness. God led his son into the wilderness God took Job into the wilderness God took Moses and the people of Israel into the wilderness God took David into the wilderness God has a pattern of taking his children into the wilderness but what we have to do is we have to look back on their lives. Do we for a moment think, having read, hopefully, the book of Job, that God was silent in Job's life? If, if you've never read the, the book of Job, just, just, just let me say the, the book of Job is as crucial to our walk with Jesus as any book in the Bible. Because if at any moment in time you, you sit here and you think that God's favor, or what happens to you as life, whether life goes good or life goes bad, is dependent upon how good you are and how righteous you are, the book of Job will slap you upside the head and turn you upside down. Because here is a guy who God says from his own mouth, this is the most righteous and blameless guy on planet Earth. Yet, who initiates Job's suffering? God or Satan? God. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And for 38 chapters, you see the suffering of Job's life. But it is the last four chapters where everything turns and everything is seen. That God was working something for his glory and for Job's good, as miserable as it made Job. And Job cried out to God over and over and over and over, why won't you answer me? Why won't you listen to me? Why is it that I am speaking to you and you stand here and you respond to me with nothing? He is found in chapter 38, if you want to go read it. Was God silent in David's life? Over and over and over, when David is crying out to God, and he feels as if God is not answering, was he silent in his life? And the answer is no. And we have the promises in scripture in Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have these promises from God, but yet this perception and this feeling of silence can overwhelm us. We have promises in scripture that say I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. And if Christ lives in me, then How is it that I cannot experience relationship with Him? How is it that He can feel silent to me when He lives in me? And church, this is the place, as hard as it is to deal with, where we are simply called to trust the promise more than the perception. In these silent, suffering seasons of life, we must we must trust in the promise of God more than the perception of what we feel like we are experiencing you need to know how daunting this feeling can be and some of you because of your personality and because the life you've lived you feel this burden you feel this weight of God's silence heavier and heavier than other people and you wonder why it is that other people don't don't seem to experience this at all and you need to know that many people who have claimed to walk away from the faith attribute this experience of the silence of God is one of the main contributors to why they walk away from the faith. You can go on the internet and you can just write, you can type in when God is silent and you will find a litany of testimonies from people who said they were Christians and now who claim to be atheists because of the experiencing the silence of God. This is the thing that they credit to why they walked away from the faith. And you need to know this is a daunting feeling, because if you're sitting here and you're going, like, I don't get this at all, this makes no sense to me, like God talks to me all the time, I'm happy, I'm bright, and I'm cheery, just realize there is a good chance that one day you will be led into this wilderness, and if you do not know how to deal with it, Satan will shipwreck your faith. To you who feel God is silent to you in this room, let me speak to you directly. But to you who one day will feel this, please hear these words. I don't claim to understand all the mysteries of this experience, but I can tell you I have walked through this experience. And I will say the more I have grown up in my faith, the longer I have walked with Jesus, the more this experience seems to be a a phenomenological reality rather than just an experience. And so the the question often becomes why? God, why are you allowing this? Like, I'm reading my Bible more, I'm praying more, I'm discipling my kids more, I'm discipling more people. I'm carrying out the Great Commission. So why is it the feel the more that I do in obedience with the commandments of your Scripture, I feel like the further you are getting away from me? Let me ask you these three questions to see if it helps you help you enter into a space where you can wrestle with this in a better way. Why is it that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? Why is water so much more refreshing when we're really thirsty? In the midst of a giant playroom filled with toys, why does being deprived of a single toy make a child have a burning desire only for the one another child has? The same answer in each of those questions is one word, deprivation. Deprivation draws out desire. The first question, we know, what, why does absence make the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? I mean, just recently, my wife was away on a trip for eight days. I can tell you by the end of those eight days, I really wanted to see my wife. And with every passing day that I was deprived of my relationship with her, that, that absence made the heart grow fonder. That there was a stronger desire to be with my wife, to be in the presence of my wife with each and every passing day. I don't have that same urge when I am with her every day, when we do life together every day, because she is there. Think about the same thing with water. You guys know I used to live in Seattle for the last 12 years. You need to know I have done nothing but curse water for the last 12 years because it does rain over 200 days every year. I never found water refreshing. I never liked water. I didn't want to go swimming. I didn't want to go play in the water because water was the bane of my existence because we were cold and wet all the time. But guess what? I mean, you know, I always say, like, the only time you, you ever sweat in the Northwest was voluntary, right? Like, if I actually, like, I, and you'd have to run for at least 30 minutes just to break a sweat. Where here, what happens? You walk outside and, oh, I just took a shower. I didn't realize I just took a shower, but I did apparently, right? Because water is everywhere. It comes out of you, it just oozes out of you. And because it does, you have to drink water. And you know this when you have been exerting yourself, when you've been in that dry desert, that how refreshing that water is when you're thirsty having put out exertion for an hour versus just, I got to get in my eight, eight ounce glasses every day, Right? There's a part where it's satisfying when you're deprived. I mean, I I remember one time in my house when it came to kids and you'll see this, once you start having children, especially like especially if you ever, like, work in a nursery or somewhere, and this is why it's just good for everybody to, like, you know, serve in, like, the kids department, because you're going to see these kids and, like, 15, 20 kids in a room, and there's going to be, like, 8,000 toys, but yet you're going to see one kid playing with one toy, and you'll see one kid in the midst of all these 7,000 toys over here turn and look around and see this one kid with this one toy over there, and then they walk over there, and they just smack them upside the head, and they take the toy from them, and you're like, dude, what's going on? He had the toy I wanted. Right? I mean, what they had, I want. I was deprived of the one thing. And so that is the one thing I want. And I will go to any length to get it. And so I give you these illustrations to say to you that deprivation draws out desire. Absence heightens desire. And the more heightened the desire, the greater its satisfaction will be. It is the morning, M O U R N I N G, that will know the joy of comfort. Jesus said, It is the hungry and the thirsty that will be satisfied. Jesus says, This is the longing that makes us ask. Emptiness makes us seek. The silence makes us knock. Let me say this to you, and this is an incredibly hard concept to grasp in our American minds. Deprivation is the design of this age. And that is an incredibly hard thing for us as successful, wealthy Americans to grasp. And I speak wealthy, wealthy in the sense of world poverty in statistics, not, oh, I'm a poor college student who only has a few hundred dollars a month. All right? Running water, sheltering, clo- shelter and clothing make us all incredibly wealthy. But yet, how often do we feel that tinge of envy and jealousy and eve that settles into a depression when we see the uh, the things that other people have, the see the, the experiences that other people get to partake in? When we are on our phone, on Instagram, and on Facebook, because they have what we wish we had, they're doing what we wish we were doing, and we, we find ourselves, and let me just say, if you've never experienced this, if you've never heard this quote, lock it away, it, it's as good as anything there is, comparison is the thief of joy. I will tell you a few months ago, I got rid of Facebook on my phone. It's one of the best decisions for my mental health that I've ever made. Because rather than being bored and killing time and scrolling, and then going, oh, look what they're doing. Oh, look what they're doing. Look what they have. Look at all those things. I don't do that anymore. I don't have my joy stolen because I'm comparing my life in the moment, sitting in the car line, waiting to pick up kids, while my friends are on vacation in Hawaii, or Italy, or, do, you know, just buying a new car, right? When I'm sitting there in the swagger wagon, which is, you know, the Honda Odyssey, you know, being Mr. Mom for the day, picking up my kids. But typically, when we're on the phone doing that, that comparison becomes that thief of joy in our lives. And so, we live in this world that the design of this age is deprivation, but yet what the world promises us is gratification, right? I mean, the, the, the fast food commercial has it, has it, has the slogan of our world nailed to a T, your way, right away. You want to know what the theme of America is? You can have it your way, right away. And so we expect this gratification this instant gratification at our fingertips all the time. But yet, the design of this age, because of the fall, is deprivation. Now let me tie all this together for us. Why is it there? Why does God give us this sense of Him being silent? Because this sense of deprivation makes us desire Him more. Now just just think about this. Many of you are going to have everything you've ever wanted. You're going to have the spouse you want. You're going to have the job you want. You're going to have the house you want, the money you want, the kids you want. And and you're going to ask yourself one day, why am I not satisfied? Like, Like, I have it all. Like, everything that I put on my checklist, I have every single one of those things. Every single dream has been realized. There's nothing left to pursue. There's nothing left to accomplish. I have every single thing that I ever wanted out of life, but yet I do not feel satisfied. And so you go to God and you say, well, God, why don't I feel satisfied? Why don't I feel content? What is wrong with me? And you get no answer. And so you press in more, and you read more, and you pray more, and still, nothing. God, why don't you answer me? Why won't you respond to me? Here I am, I'm telling you, I'll do whatever you want. And so, this discontentment will grow inside of you. And if we're not careful... We get led down this road that God is silent and God is not speaking to us. But might it be that the only way for God to get our attention, to keep our focus on Him and to keep us running after Him is to let us experience this phenomenological experience that He is silent and from us that causes us to press in harder to run after Him and to desire Him in a way, and the only way we would desire, we desire Him is because we feel, we have this experience as if we're being deprived, but yet the reality is we're not being deprived at all. But yet God allows these situations in our life so that we would have a stronger desire for Him, a stronger desire more than anything in this world. And so in reality is is it not God's blessing to us that He seems silent? Because if we were completely satisfied with our relationship with Him, if we were completely satisfied with how things were going, we wouldn't run after Him and chase after Him. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see another turkey until next year Thanksgiving. Right? I've eaten turkey for a whole flipping week. I'm done with turkey. Like in 350-something days, we can talk about turkey again. Before then, I might hit somebody, okay? Because I'm just sick of turkey. But in the same way, if if, if we're fully and completely satisfied in our relationship with God, then we're like, no, I'm good. I got all taken care of. But when we're deprived of that thing we want and we long for, might it be that God allows this thing feeling of deprivation because it's not a reality but this feeling to institute into our lives a strong desire to run after him and to chase him so what we have to do is is to reframe the conversation it's not as if god is silent god is not speaking god is not working so don't get depressed by thinking, oh, God is not speaking, He's not answering, He's not there. No, because He is. But rather, reframe the situation and say to oneself, God is using this so that my desire for Him would be stronger, so that I would pursue Him more, be drawn into a relationship with Him more, that I would be dissatisfied with the things of this world, that I would realize what Scripture says is true, that the things of this world are, are fleeting and failing, they will all pass away, and the true joy and the true treasure is Jesus Christ Himself and my pursuit of Him and my relationship with Him. And what this will also do for you, and do not miss this. So many people, when they have these feelings of of God being absent, God being silent, they give up and they get away from community. Let Let me tell you, the place you need to be is not in isolation. Do not run into isolation. Satan has a filled day with people in isolation. Because when it is just you and him sitting alone in a room, In a downward, depressed state, He will pile on top of you and He will beat you down. The place you have to go is to the community of believers. Because what you have to remember, even if you feel as if God is silent and not speaking directly to you, you need to know there are three places where He is always speaking to you. Number one, the community of believers. Do not get isolated. Take heed of Peter's warning in 1 Peter 5, 8 that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants you separated from the herd. But you need to know, God will always speak through the counsel of other believers. So you never have to feel that God is silent if you go to another brother or sister who will speak truth and grace into your life. The other place where God is always speaking, and I I referenced this last week, is that He has spoken to us through His Son. Not ESPN, all right? He has spoken to us through His Son. This is the Word of God. There are over a thousand pages of God's Word given to us. We have the words of God. We have the words of Jesus Christ written down and recorded for us. For us, God is never silent because He speaks through this Word. If you do not know Hebrews 4.12, learn Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit joint and marrow, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. If you are reading this word, God is speaking to you. God has spoken and he continues to speak through this. Now you may have questions about career choices and the person you're going to marry and you're saying, God, I'm asking, why aren't you answering? That's another discussion for another day. But I say this to you, to just be aware of this. If you're in a silent suffering season, reframe this conversation. Turn it and understand that God is drawing you closer to himself, not distancing himself from you. That is actually a blessing and a gift to make you pursue him, to give you an increasing dissatisfaction of this world and a greater desire for and if you've never experienced this, one day, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will bring this, to, this sermon to remembrance. It'll bring this to remembrance like, oh, before you get down in that deep, dark black hole of depression, realize that God is actually at work, not being absent from you. And let me just say and say this. These are always just a season. Sometimes there's seasons that we come out of, we go into and then come out of, and we're out of it for a really long time. Sometimes we're in the season for a seemingly long while, we come out of it, the the, the ray of light breaks through, and then we go right back into it. As John Bloom said, and who should get much of the credit for, for many things that I've said today, God's ways are not our ways. But meditate on on psalm 28 because i'll i'll close with reading the entire thing because this is one of those psalms that is is really interesting because it it feels kind of schizophrenic i'll be honest i i have a hard time with david sometimes david king david is emotionally all over the place like this like i pretty much live my life kind of like that and so I, 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 I have a hard time connecting with David and his highly emotional states sometimes because I just don't fluctuate my emotional states like that. But I think this is a perfect example of David in half the psalm being deeper than deep in the pit and then being higher than highest of heavens. Look what he says. To you, O Lord, I call my rock be not deaf to me lest if you be silent to me i become like those who go down to the pit hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when i cry to you for help when i lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary so we can see we can see we can feel we can sense his desperation and he begs god Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. So you can see David is understanding and espousing his own righteousness and is saying, God, why aren't you speaking to me? Yet when I look at around of all these other people who are doing evil and not doing what you want, they seem to be successful. They seem to be thriving. They seem to have everything and life seems to be going well for them. God, I need you to speak. I need you to do something. I need you to move. And then all of a sudden, there is this shift where, and it's interesting in my Bible, how the first five verses are going down into the pit, but yet in verse 6, we get this climactic high moment where the next word out of David's mouth is, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my plea for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. this psalm should be a reminder of us that we live sometimes in this depressed state because God feels silent and absent to us but know that God is always at work and that moment of light, that breakthrough that moment of joy is somewhere on the horizon but until that moment and joy and horizon comes fully and forever in heaven in seasons in this life remember that the seeming silence of God is there to give you this sense of deprivation, that you would desire Him, run after Him, that you would ask, seek, and knock over and over and over until you can say with David, blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Let's pray. Father, as we are about to take communion as the body of Christ, I pray that this communion would be comforting and soothing to those who are suffering in the silent in one of the silent seasons i pray that as they take the body of christ that is broken as they drink from the cup that represents his blood that was shed that they would see that there is a god who loves them for if they are your children you have pursued You have redeemed them. You have forgiven them. You have blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have given them a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. That Christ lives in them. They are in Christ. They are as righteous and blameless as the Lord Jesus. May they sense and feel the depths to which you have gone to redeem and to rescue them by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May they be comforted in this silent season of affliction. But Father, my prayer is that Satan would not win this battle for their heart and for their mind and over their emotions, but that somewhere in this they would find a deep and residing and sustaining joy That this is not punishment. This is is not them having done wrong and, and turned away from you necessarily. But you are using this experience to draw them to you. To give them a greater desire. To give them a greater longing for you. To give them a dissatisfaction with anything and everything in this world so that they would not be tempted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, but they would be drawn to great King Jesus, that they would pursue Him, that they would run after Him, that they would spend time in the Word, they would spend time in prayer. And that, God, that that as they do this, and as you build this incredible foundation based on these desires, that your Spirit will break through, and may they come to this place now, in fact, today. In fact, in this moment where they can see, blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the pleas for my mercy. But Father, if you do not grant this today, may your spirit strengthen and undergird them in this silent season of suffering. Give them strength to pursue and to run after you with all their heart, with all the soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. God, as we take communion and sing and leave this place today, please work into our hearts the desire to tell all men, all women, all children about what it is that Jesus has done for us on the cross that we celebrate here in this community. It's in Jesus' name we pray.